good morning. How are we doing? All right. Well, we're continuing our series through uh, Romans chapter 12. Um, but a study that I enjoyed doing a few years ago was to go through as much of the Bible as I could um, find and isolate every prayer that was recorded and then read them through and study them. And I, I really enjoyed doing it. Uh, it's helpful when you've got some Bible software where you can sort of say, search for all the prayers, um, and, it, and it spits them back out again for you. But to go through as many of the prayers that you can find that are recorded in the Bible, I think was quite a profound moment, which significantly altered how I thought about prayer and even affected how I pray. And maybe the most significant, if we can rank them, but I think at least for, for me in my study, one of the most significant prayers was John chapter 17, often referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And he prays a prayer just before his arrest and his crucifixion. And it's in the same space and time where he wrestles with this whole sense of God's will. Do you remember that? You can recall it or you can read it in Luke 22 and 42 where quite famously Jesus cries out, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, if we stop to think about who's doing the praying and who he's praying to, it breaks our heads a little bit. God praying to God, saying, not my will, but yours be done. We have the mystery of the Trinity involved in there. But here he is, Jesus, wrestling with God's will. That whole prayer is quite interesting. I'm going to read a portion of it to you. John chapter 17, verses 9 onwards. If you want to find it in your Bibles, you can. Jesus is praying for his disciples and then for even us, those who would follow after them. But let's pick it up in John chapter 17 and verse 9. It says this, I pray for them. This is Jesus praying. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. Everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine and I am glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now I am coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. 
I have given them your word. The world hates them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. There are a few themes in Jesus' prayer that are important for us to recall, especially as we look to our text in Romans 12 this morning. And we'll highlight those as we go through. But the one I want you to consider first comes as we consider God's will. So here's a question I want you to ask yourself. Is the will of God something that you wrestle with? Is it something that you have wrestled with in the past? It's a big topic, the will of God. We use it as Christians if you've been around the church for quite some time. We say it in conversations where I think, I, th- I think it might be God's will for me to something or other. Or we, we go up and ask someone for prayer and say, will you pray for me that I would know God's will for this certain decision that I'm going to make? Or, or a big choice is in front of you and you think, I wonder what is God's will. We wrestle with God's will, right? At least I have. And most people that I know have said at some point in time, really uncertain. I'm unsure about God's will. Well, this morning I have good news for you. After extensive study, I'm going to tell you a never-fail method for knowing God's will. Never fails. All right? But I'm going to pray that I don't say anything heretical. Will you pray with me? Yes. Great. Lord, we're going to go to your word now, and I've been tasked with the responsibility of saying, thus saith the Lord. And that's frightening. We should all tremble as we reflect and hear your voice this morning. We don't want to mishear it. We don't want to misspeak it. We certainly don't want to disobey it. So, Spirit, will you give us all ears to hear? Help my poor mouth to be able to reflect truth. Our ears to receive it and hearts to obey it. We want to be conformed to what you are saying this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you can stand up, I'd love for you to stand with me while we read just the opening two verses of Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. You follow along. I will have it on the screen, I think. Romans chapter 12. Let me start with verse 1. This is where we started last week, and we're going to go into verse 2 and really branch out today. Ready? Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. We dealt with that last week. 
Verse 2, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. And that's God's word. Why don't you take a seat? All right, before I get to the will of God question, which I led with and said, hey, I'm going to give you a never fail method to knowing the will of God for your life, let me address another question that a few people have asked me over the last week. As we considered verse 1 last Sunday, I made the point that God was calling us to daily die. If you were here, I think I quoted from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who also said that if Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. To offer ourselves as a living sacrifice in a lifestyle of worship. But the question is, how do I do that? Which I think is a fair enough question. The reason I didn't try to answer that exhaustively last week is that I know that, funnily enough, verse 2 follows verse 1. And that we would get to that a bit. I know. I didn't have to go to uni to figure that one out, though. We'd hit this issue over and over again. So let me just zoom in a little bit on verse 2. Have a look at it in your Bible. I'm going to read it to you again. Romans 12 and 2. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. Paul isn't writing a book of Proverbs, a series of disconnected truths that stand on their own merit. Paul's writing an argument, not in the sense of arguing with someone, but he's writing a logical series of truths that build on each other to form a point. He wants us to understand something. He wants us to live something out. And so he's building this kind of robust presentation of the gospel, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, section by section, all connected and all dependent on each other. So we shouldn't read verse 2 this morning as being disconnected from verse 1. And to a large degree, I think verse 2 is helping us answer the question which is raised by verse 1. How do I offer myself as a living sacrifice? How do I do that? I want to do that. I want to live a life of true worship. I don't want worship to finish at 11 o'clock. I want every day of the week to be this daily dying. How do I do it? Well, before we go much further, let me give you my big idea for the week. And then we'll move through the text and show, I hope... How I came to that conclusion, you can test it. So here's my big idea. The gospel creates a subversive, alternate culture. The gospel creates a subversive, alternate culture that exists to bless the world it lives within and invite others into. 
Right? That's, I'm going to come back to that at the end a little bit, but that's where I'm kind of summarising what I think verse 2 is asking us to do as it builds on verse 1. Some of those words, you're like, I don't know if I like that word. We'll explain it as we go through. Okay, there's a bunch of logical relationships in this verse, and I want to point them out before we go on to the content, just so that we understand the flow of what Paul's trying to say here. So before we get to the content of what Paul says and why that matters, I think... I want to point out an important observation about this verse. So have a look, Romans 12 and verse 2. I'm going to highlight a couple of key phrases for you. The first one is this, do not. All right, do not. So you could highlight that or or underline that or make a note of it in in a notebook or something. The next one is but be. And then the third one is so that. Now, they are just logical relationships in the English language. Your translation might be different that you're reading from, but you should be able to see maybe similar words or similar phrases as how the Christian Standard Bible says it there. Do not, but be, so that. Don't worry about the content for the moment. We'll get to the specifics shortly, but I want you to notice the three key ingredients to this logical relationship. They work together to form a single idea... That's essential in understanding these opening verses of the chapter. The first two, do not and but be, act as alternate possibilities arising from a given situation. And the last one is an action-result relationship. It works by taking the first two ingredients, the do not and the but be, And it combines those and then it states what the result of that action will be. So you can understand how that works. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that... Can you see the the logical relationships with that? Paul's asking us to shy away from one thing and embrace another. Don't do this. Instead, do this. All right, can you see that? If you do that, he says, so that, do these things, don't do these things, so that something's going to happen. There's going to be some outcome that will occur if we can stay away from that and embrace this. That's how the sentence works. Anyway, that's our little grammar refresher. Don't groan. God has spoken. More specifically, he's spoken to us through his word. So even if we aren't linguistic experts, it's good for us to have a basic grasp of how the language works. God's spoken through it to us. We want to understand what he's saying. We understand what God is speaking about when we read the word. After all, don't we want to know his will? I do. I think we all do. All right. Logical relationship to the sentence is one thing, but coming to terms with the content of those relationships is another. So let's turn our attention there. Let's do the first one. Do not be conformed. Do not be conformed. So here's the side of that sort of alternate logical relationship that's negative. Do not. 
Some people go, oh, I don't like the Bible. There's so many do-nots in the Bible. And as Christians, we often say, oh, no, don't focus on the do-nots. Focus on the do's, right? The things that God's asking us to embrace or changing in our life. And I get that. But, man, there's some important do-nots that we need to understand as well, right? This is not just about legalism. This is not just about sort of moral pieism or anything. This is about God saying, hey, there's a way of life that will destroy you. Don't go there. So let's have a look at this do not. Let's break down what Paul is warning us of here. Do do not be conformed to this age. English Standard Version. Who's reading one of those? Raise your hand if you're an ESV person here this morning. Yep. ESV, do not be conformed, doesn't say age, does it? Do not be conformed to this world. All right? So keep that in mind. I think when the translators of the NIV, who's rocking a NIV? Very good. Like a, a, a new revised NIV or like the really good old 1985? Oh, 1983. All right? If you're going to read an NIV, go the 1983 one. It's a good one. All right? When the translators of the NIV were working with the original language, they tried to highlight a subtle meaning in the Greek here that shows that this world or this age has a certain agenda it wants to conform us to. So they translate the text like this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Although I'm not actually a huge fan of using the NIV on a regular basis, I actually really think that's a helpful insight to grasp a hold of. In fact, about 70 years ago, a guy by the name of J.B. Phillips wrote a uh, transliteration, not really a translation, but a transliteration of the New Testament, which was kind of like a 1950s version of Eugene Peterson's The Message. This is what J.B. Phillips says. I've brought my copy of, of my old one of it. I, I love this, um, this translation. In fact, my grandfather, this is not his copy, but my grandfather has this, had this book. And I can remember as a young boy, my dad preaching on Romans 12 and 2 and reading J.B. Phillips' translation out of a book that looked exactly the same as this. And I always used to think, man, I wish to... I'm not, man, when my dad moves on to a better place, I'm going to get that book. <laughs> don't worry, there's a few things that I've earmarked in his library that I want, but... But now we don't have to, Dad, if you're watching this online or something. I don't have to. Um, some of you will remember a, a dear brother that was a part of this church for many years, Kevin Turnbull. Remember Kevin? Um, this is a book, and it's got Kevin's name in it. Um, I didn't steal it. It it was a gift. This is how J.B. Phillips translates Romans 12 and 2. He says, Don't let the world, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mould. But let God remould 
your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands and moves towards the goal of true maturity. Let me read just the beginning of that again. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mould. He's working off that subtle meaning in the Greek that the NIV picks up. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. That's what the ESV says. Don't conform to this world. Christian Standard Bible, don't conform to this age. The message... Eugene Peterson's transliteration says, Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. So, what do we take from all of that? Well, here are a couple of observations that I think are worth highlighting. First is this the world has a pattern, a mold that it wants you to fit. It's a tone of this age that it wants you to echo in your life. It has an agenda that it wants you to fill. The world isn't passive. It is actively and aggressively pursuing you. Right? You have to be aware of this. Every waking moment of your life is under the continual influence of the gravitational pull of the world. We cannot afford to ignore it. We certainly can't afford to be ignorant of it. We must open our eyes because while we might be passive, it never is. I tried to brainstorm a few of the moulds that I've identified in this age. Some of the patterns that I've seen and especially that I have felt the pull of during my 45 years of living in the world. So here's the first one. There's, there's heaps more, and you might like to add to this list, but these are the ones that I thought of without having to even think too hard. We live in a world where we have elevated the celebrity of personality. That, that's a pattern in this world. It's a mould. So individualism, which is the idea that the most important in the person in the world is you, has long been held as a value in this world. But in recent times, I think that that has found another gear and kicked it up another notch. And the drive to platform yourself or become a viral sensation or to be seen as an influencer has reached feverish proportions, right? Now, yes, social media and the digital communication world is putting the allure of celebrity into the hands of the masses. And it seems like it's a drug that our world cannot get enough of. Everyone wants to 
make it. Everyone wants to be seen. Everyone wants to be noticed. It plays into some of the deepest parts of the insecurities of our personality. What if I'm forgotten in this world? Can I exist if no one knows that I exist? And so we have taken the role of the personality and we have elevated it and turned it into a celebrity culture and it doesn't happen just out there. It happens in here as well. That's one of the first moulds that I thought of. We also live in a world dominated by tribalism. There's a second pattern that I thought of. So although everyone wants to be the next individual sensation, deep down we know that the odds of us becoming the next viral phenomenon is fairly slim. And so we jostle and we jockey with each other to position ourselves to find fame by association. We want to be associated with the right people. More importantly, we want to be seen to associate with the right people. I think the flip side of this is the reason why there is now such a thing as cancel culture in this world. We will elevate our own group, our own tribe, by attacking and cancelling any other tribe or group that transgresses whatever cultural value holds dominance in this society that we live in. We think that we will become somebody by associating with the right somebodies. And that's a pattern in this world. We can't afford to be blind to it. Third one. We live in a world which is saturated by hypersexualization. Sexualized children's entertainment is becoming commonplace. Attitudes towards sexual expression are becoming more fluid and more extreme. What was considered to be sexually deviant only a couple of decades ago is now not only accepted, but celebrated and championed. Regular pornography use. Accessing pornographic websites at least once a month has been surveyed as now exceeding 80% of the population. With the average age of first porn exposure now 11 years old. Because these statistics don't change much between surveys of the wider population and those that profess to be Christians, that means that many of us will be struggling against this pervasive evil. And that's whether you're sitting in a pew, watching this on a live stream, or standing behind a pulpit. There is a mould that this world wants us to fit. We also live in a world polarised by extremism. There's an any or all nothing which attitude dominates the world's mentality. More and more people are identifying with the extreme ends of every spectrum. 
and those that are still trying to hold the balance, they aren't esteemed for being moderate in their views. They're labelled instead as being weak or spineless, without moral virtue. We also live in a world where your worth can only be measured by what you own or what you can contribute. The world says that worth can be audited. You have to prove your worth through your possessions or your contribution to society. And those that are unable to, well, they're discarded or aborted before they even get the chance. There are so many moulds, so many patterns that this age seeks to press in to us. Every single one of these are a constant force in our life, pressing us to fit a certain shape. So we have to identify this morning, there is a pattern. We have to be at least aware of it. Here's the second thing I want you to notice, just from that opening phrase. That being conformed is a passive process. Do not be conformed to this age. Paul's assuming that you can just be conformed. That, that you are just passively involved in this process. Paul's plea with us is to stop being passive. Can you see that? Do not be conformed. Here's the thing, and this is what makes this so dangerous. We don't need to try to fit the world's mold. You don't have to leave here this morning and think, you know what, I'm going to make a concerted effort this morning, this afternoon, or the days that follow. I'm going to make a real effort this week to fit the world's mould. I mean, you could go out and try and do that, but you don't need to. All you need to do to conform to this age, do nothing. Go with the flow. Stop resisting. The flow of the stream will inevitably sweep you out to sea. The best way to conform is to do nothing at all. Generally, I'm not a huge fan of the message, Eugene Peterson's work. I think Eugene Peterson, though, nails the sense of this idea. Don't become, remember what he said? So well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. So here's a question we must ask ourselves. How well adjusted are we to our culture? How often do we stop to even recognise the forces that are pushing against us, let alone analyse them? Maybe our campaign to discover a type of cool Christianity hasn't achieved what we thought it would. Maybe we got too carried away in our efforts to remove every barrier between us and the world for the sake of the gospel. But maybe it wasn't for the sake of the gospel after all. Maybe it was so that we just felt like we fitted in. 
If you know Jesus and if he is enthroned in your life, you will never fit into this world. In fact, we were never meant to. We are supposed to look different. We're supposed to break the mould. If we're not, we look like everyone else. And that just means that we're comfortable with conformity. All right, that's the negative stuff. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. What's the next one? Instead, be transformed, right? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We might assume that the alternate choice to being conformed to the world is to instead be conformed to Christ. Don't be conformed to the world. Instead, be conformed to Christ. After all, that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Paul, speaking about Jesus, says, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's God's end goal. He wants you to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So while it is true that God's desire and plan for you is to look more and more like Jesus, Romans 12 and 2 makes an enormously important distinction about how that should happen. This says, rather than be conformed, we must be transformed. Here's why. True Christian transformation isn't just looking more and more like a Christian. We are to ask ourselves, what does a Christian look like? And then just go and try and do all the things that are on that list. Jesus doesn't want a bunch of people in Raymond Terrace who just look like Christians. He wants completely transformed, new creations, living by daily dying, born again, not just a fan, but a follower of Jesus, right? The world doesn't need more actors. (laughs) Neither does the church. How does this transformation happen? Firstly, it happens by choosing what we will fill our eyes with. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Here's the thing. We can't change ourselves. I've tried a thousand times and I've failed. My self-control and strength of will have a limit. And so do yours. 2 Corinthians 3 says that it is the glory of God that changes us. As we behold it, he says, as we gaze at it, as we are absorbed by it, it changes us. It changes us. Not all at mind 
Not all at once, mind you. He's honest. He says one degree of glory after another. Bit by bit. But change we will. Transformed from the inside out. Not like an actor putting on a new costume, but like a baby growing in the womb, cell by cell, layer by layer, limb by limb, every stage of growth shaped by the DNA buried within each cell. We're changed by what we look at. So the question is, what are you looking at? What absorbs your vision? What are you gazing at in this world? That's what we're changed by. Romans 12 and 2 says that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Not you are renewed by reforming your behaviours. Does behaviour matter? Of course it does, right? But reforming your behaviour won't reform your mind. To do so is like saying it's the tail that wags the dog. Instead, Paul says we start with the mind. So what are we filling it with? What do you feed on? Is your mind on a steady diet of junk food? I can remember my mum saying, maybe you've heard it too, Garbage in, garbage out. And just like it is for our bodies, and so it is with our spiritual lives. That doesn't mean this morning that you have to go out and resolve to be an academic. Or for me to be a great Christian, I've got to become a scholar. Or a degree. It's not talking about anything to do with theological education. Just like eating a healthy diet doesn't make you a dietitian. This is about what you feed your mind with on a daily basis. Am I saying you can't sit down and enjoy a show on Netflix? No, I'm not saying that at all. The next time you do, ask yourself, what is this feeding me? Maybe we'll need to make some different choices. Maybe we'll need to curate our Facebook feed a little bit better. I'm astounded by some of the garbage that Christians like and share on social media. If your Facebook feed looks just like the world's, then there's a problem. Romans 12 and 2, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Now I want to remind you again of that big idea that I said we had for this week. The gospel creates a subversive alternate culture that exists to bless the world it lives within and invite others into. 
Some of you may have been wondering about that word subversive. I chose it very deliberately. To be subversive is to act and think in a way which is contrary to the environment that you live in. As Christians, we live in the world. Do you remember Jesus' prayer back in John 17? He says, I am praying for them. He says, I don't want you to take them out of the world. Okay, We live in the world. That's where we live. Until Jesus comes to take us home, guess where we are? We're in the world, right? We live in the world. And we have all the same forces and pressures as anyone in the world. Just because you claim the name of Christ does not shield you from those molds that are out there. However, this text wants us to live in continual defiance of those forces. Right? They're trying to conform you. The world is seeking to mold us. To live subversively is to live in the presence of these forces, but instead be remolded or transformed by something else entirely. The end result is a subversive lifestyle where we operate in the world, but not by the world's standards. We have a different mission, and it's the will of God. So here's the secret. This is where we're going to finish. I told you that I'm going to give you a surefire secret to knowing God's will. In fact, I've already given it to you. Do not be conformed to this age, Paul says. There's the first part of the secret. Instead, or but, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's the second part of the secret. So that, right, here's the outcome. So that you may, what? Discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So this morning, you said, I want to discern God's will. All right, great. Here's how we go about doing that. We actively and subversively live in this world by saying, I know the molds. I can see the patterns now. I will resist. I will not go there. I will not conform to them. But you and I both know that our wills are weak. And the things that I say that I don't want to do, I do do. And in fact, you're not alone in that because Paul, who wrote this, he said the same thing. So what do we need? More willpower? We need transformation. When Nicodemus, who was very interested in what Jesus had to say and do, but was also very fearful of his colleagues in the religious world, when, when Nicodemus wanted to find out more, he came to Jesus secretly. John chapter 3. One of the things that Jesus said to him is, Nicodemus, you must be what? must be born again. You can't do this the way that you're built if you're operating in the world, John, Nicodemus. You have to experience new life, a new birth. You have to be transformed. Is the will of God something 
you wrestle with? If it is, and let me tell you that it is for most people. I said I have good news. This morning I'm going to tell you a never-fail method of discovering God's will for your life. And the answer is not an online quiz or even a course that you have to sign up for. The answer is living by daily dying. It's facing each day as though it were a living sacrifice. Each day gazing at the glory of Christ that we see in the gospel. Living in continual defiance of the pull of this world. Refusing to lay down and conform to the mold that it's trying to squeeze you into. It's deliberately entering into a subversive lifestyle by feeding your mind with what will ultimately transform your life. That's how you discern the will of God. Even when that will is hard, we'll see that it's good. Even when we have to walk through dark valleys, we'll see that God's will is pleasing. And even though we don't understand his will, we'll be confident that it is perfect. Because that's what God's word has told us. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that you have spent with us in your word this morning and I pray that these words would drive deep into the places where they need to touch for all of us. Lord, give us eyes to see the patterns and the moulds that we have maybe inadvertently even just passively, slowly been getting comfortable with. Lord, break those moulds. Help us in our weakness Spirit, will you strengthen us and give us eyes to see, firstly, the glory of Jesus. We want to be transformed, changed from the inside out by one degree of glory to another until eventually we are conformed in fullness to the image of Jesus, our Saviour. We want to live in defiance of what this world says we must look like and we want to look like you. So help us, Lord. Transform us by your glory. Help us to make wise decisions about what we fill our minds with. And we thank you for your grace towards us in our weakness as you walk beside us and call us ever closer into your presence. We commit not only this day, but all the days that follow into doing this. In Jesus' name, amen.